Episode 51 of Sass Mouth Dame's podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. During a Women's March last year, Natalie Portman delivered a speech that gave a name to something many girls have experienced when they are very young and entirely unprepared. She described what happened when she turned 13. Having just completed her first picture, The Professional, she opened her first fan letter with excitement. The letter contained a man's rape fantasy. At a tender age, she was put on notice. She was made responsible for male sexual desire. Portman spoke about what this meant for her in a culture where a local radio station held a countdown to her 18th birthday, where she would no longer be jailbait. Portman's sadness and anger are palpable in the video. The age may vary by a year or two, but for many girls, the experience is the same. It's the moment when men come out of the woodwork. I'm not talking about boys, I mean adult men. Suddenly, you're up for grabs, open for business, and you cannot escape what men think of your personal, physical appearance. A girl's whole perspective on life becomes distorted by the reality of male desire. Portman, on her part, took steps to minimize and deny her own sexuality to deflect male attention. She rejected roles that included kissing scenes and cultivated the reputation of a prudish bookworm. In her speech, Natalie Portman referred to this dynamic as sexual terrorism. When I watched the video and I heard her say this, the truth of her words made my back teeth vibrate, the way they used to when my cat purred against my cheek. When you hear the truth, it strikes a chord. Now, Natalie was fortunate that she was able to protect herself against sexual terrorism. But what about the girls who cannot? What happens when your whole life is defined by the predators who stalked your girlhood? Evelyn Nesbitt was the victim of sexual terrorism, and she was trapped by men's violence throughout her life in a story that has held public attention and interest for more than a century. Evelyn's story is important because it teaches us valuable lessons. Even if you're terrorized and your life becomes splashed across the scandal sheets, you can survive it. At least that's what I take from it. Evelyn Nesbitt was a survivor. Nothing has aged about the story she records in her memoir, Prodigal Days, which was first published in 1934, nearly 30 years after the events described. You could adapt it to the screen today, and with only a change of costume and setting, it would be entirely relevant. Evelyn's biography lends itself to a host of social anxieties about female purity, sexual coercion, power, male privilege, and the staggering excess of the 1%. She was a young beauty caught in the middle of a notorious scandal murder case in 1906. Evelyn's millionaire husband, Harry Thaw, shot a man three times in the head on the rooftop cabaret in Madison Square Garden. The deceased had been her former lover, the prestigious architect Stanford White. The case was dubbed the trial of the century. Now, if I were to indulge in the tabloid impulse to wrap her story up in a nice little package, I would tell you that she was once the great beauty at 16 years old who accepted a bouquet of violets from a 22-year-old John Barrymore. 
As an old woman, she was reduced to sell her story to Fox Studio. During the Hollywood production, she attempted to hide her dependence on gin by eating violet-scented cashews to cover up the telltale smell. The bloom of fresh violet she knew as a girl decayed over time into a tawdry breath mint. It's so easy to pluck out details that seem to reappear with larger significance. Most of the coverage of Evelyn's life has been painted in this broadsheet fashion. It all began with William Randolph Hearst, who stacked the New York City courtroom with women reporters that became known as the Sob Sisters, those women who supposedly captured the human angle of the story. It's tempting to read the Sob Sisters as drawing attention to the plight of girls like Evelyn, except in their traditional defense of delicate female virtue, it made Evelyn responsible for the behavior of adult men. Before I get to the scandalous bits, it's important to remember that Evelyn Nesbitt was more than a girl that rich men found desirable. She was also an actor, a sculptor, a painter, and a gifted writer. And she developed, by force of necessity, a media savvy that was far ahead of its time. Evelyn truly has a novelist's eye for detail, pacing, and characterization. She may have been forced by necessity to sell her story, but there's nothing about her book that screams desperate cash grab. All the elements of scandal are present, a gray beauty pursued by rich and powerful men, the love triangle, the tragedy. But one of the reasons that her story endures over time is because she masters the sentence-level affairs that makes the reader's eye glide over the page as though soaring in the fabled red velvet swing. Evelyn can write. In the media, the significance of her story has perhaps come full circle. She was initially a commercial juggernaut, a supermodel, featured in ads for everything from beauty products to sausages. She had one of the most recognizable faces of her era. Then she was known as a muse for serious artists and later a darling of the stage before she was pursued by men of society. And then ultimately she became a symbol of innocent maidenhood or one as a wanton gold digger. Born to an affluent family in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the Nesbitts suffered a sharp reversal of fortune when the father died at a young age. Evelyn's mother was at a loss for how to provide for Evelyn and her younger brother. Mrs. Nesbitt had dreams of being a dress designer, but they never panned out. They lived on the charity of family members until the mother chanced her arm at finding opportunities in New York City. The three Nesbitts lived in a tiny flat. It didn't take long for Evelyn's mother to turn to her as an asset, brokering Evelyn's youth and beauty to keep the family afloat. First, Evelyn worked as an artist model from the time she was 14 years old. In time, she earned $5 for half-day posing or $10 for a full day, which was a significant sum of money then. She became so popular as a model that she was one of the most recognizable faces of her era. Evelyn did commercial sittings, but she also posed for serious artists such as Charles Dana Gibson. She is the figure for the illustration of the famous The Eternal Question, a girl shown with a waterfall of luxuriant tresses spilling over her shoulders into a question mark. Before Freud posed the question, artists were wondering what women wanted. As a consummate Gibson girl, Evelyn embodied a femininity that was regarded as progressive and modern. She was no Victorian angel of the house. 
She was, had a public life. She began to appear in fashionable clubs and restaurants. When Evelyn was 16, she joined the Floridoro Girls production, and her stage performances received glowing reviews. Her publicity grew. Men turned up to admire Evelyn. Her suitors included the 22-year-old John Barrymore. Barrymore was smitten, sending love notes backstage, begging for a dinner date. John Barrymore was only an illustrator at the time, before he was known as the Great Profile. But his seduction technique was strong even then. One night, Barrymore brought Evelyn to Rector's, the smartest supper club for the after-theater set. Evelyn was in awe of the place she referred to as the Lobster Palace, renowned as it was for its superb cuisine. At one point, he ordered a glass of milk. John Barrymore floated a single rose petal in the center of the glass and said, This is your mouth. Around the same time, Evelyn noticed a man with gray hair in the first row each night watching her closely. The man watching from the front row was Stanford White. One of the Floridora girls, Edna Goodrich, invited Evelyn to a lunch that was being hosted by Stanford White. Evelyn assumed it was safe to go because she wasn't alone. Stanford White was a leading figure of his day. He was the architect responsible for some of American landmarks of the 20th century, such as Penn Station, Madison Square Garden, and the Washington Square Arch. He was 47 years old when they met. He was extremely wealthy, married, and well-respected, not to mention old enough to be her father. White looked like an upstanding man, but he was in fact a predator. How else should we view a man who keeps a secret sex lair on top of the most famous toy shop in New York City? White's private flat on 24th Street sat directly above FAO Schwartz. Evelyn's gift for storytelling is so adept that she doesn't waste time with the reader for listing a a bunch of buildings that he designed. Instead, she puts the reader in her shoes and what it was like to step from poverty into a fairy tale when she walked in his flat. She was mesmerized by the rooms and by the delicacies on the table and the glass of champagne she was given. She notes that he was the innovator for recessed lighting. She wandered around rooms that glowed indirectly and how novel it was when the room was lit up but you could see no bare exposed bulbs. Evelyn's description makes his flat sound like a film set, one that was carefully constructed to seduce young girls. Why else would he have a swing hanging from the ceiling in one room? As a predator grooming his victim, Stanford White repurposed the innocent symbols of childhood with a very adult connotation. In her memoir, she quotes White as saying, let's put this little kid in the swing first before she climbed on. He said that to the rest of the guests. Edna Goodrich, the older Corrine, suggested Evelyn play a game and kick out the sections of a parasol that were hanging from above. This scenario and the swing has sex written all over it. The girl moves up and down in one place, and her motion provides an upskirt flash for the man watching below. Evelyn said that later she sat in the swing naked for him, and anyone reading her memoir knew that White had predestined the moment. He used all of his money to create a honeypot to draw young girls. He offered delicacies and champagne, and also an outward paternalistic concern. He said all the right things to her mother, a woman who really just wanted to be relieved of the responsibility of her. 
Both mother and daughter were touched when White sent Evelyn to his dentist to have her front tooth fixed. He continued to pursue her and groom her. He sent lavish gifts, such as a long red cloak with a black satin collar. When Evelyn tried it on for him, he quipped, You look just like Little Red Riding Hood. Then one night, after he sent her mother out of town, assuring her that Evelyn would be well looked after, he plied her with plenty of champagne, and then he probably drugged one of her glasses before he raped her. Evelyn titles the chapter, I Become a Woman, which is an unmistakable rape scene even when it was published in 1934. We could unpack that whole title and to what that means, but I'll just read you the, the small passage here from Evelyn's Prodigal Days where she tells it in her own words. I become a woman, the mirror room. Several nights after my mother's departure, Stanford sent a cab to the theater with a note instructing me to drive to the 24th Street place. It goes without saying, young and inexperienced, it never occurred to me that men did not maintain covert establishments merely for the pleasure of giving private Sunday school lessons to chorus girls. So I went to this rendezvous unsuspectingly. I forget the date. William Travers Jerome, the the district attorney, made a great fuss at that first thought trial about the date of this visit to the 24th Street place, but I was at a loss to remember it. He tried his damnedest to make me say it was a certain night, a particular date, but I refused. I really and truly could not remember." At any rate, it was on this particular night, with no other guest present, that the inevitable happened. We enjoyed a good supper and several glasses of champagne. After supper, Stanford took me through the whole place and showed me at last the mysterious mirror room. This room deserves detailed description. It was small, about 10 feet square, the walls and ceiling covered with mirrors, the floor with imitation glass. The mirrors were about two feet square, and they were so cleverly set together that they gave the appearance of being a solid sheet of mirror covering. Here again, indirect lighting cast a soft glow over everything. At one side stood a large moss green velvet-colored couch, immense in so small a room. The multiple mirrors created an extraordinary effect. You saw yourself repeated in endless vistas, in an infinitude of reflections. The novelty and the unreality held me spellbound. Stanford brought in champagne, and as I sat on the couch sipping the wine, I was thrilled by the sight of my reflections at every turn. My spirits were buoyant as air. Returning to the supper room, we went there into a rear room, a tiny bedroom. The night being somewhat chill, a log fire blazed in the fireplace, over which hung another lovely nude by Robert Reed. Draperies hung from ceiling to floor in regal folds. In one corner stood a four-poster canopy bed draped with gorgeous curtains that drew apart or together at the pull of a cord. The headboard of the bed, the dome of the canopy, and the wall next to the bed, there were three solid mirrors. Adroitly hidden all around the top of the bed were tiny electric bulbs, and within easy reach, a series of buttons regulating the light effects. By pushing one button, an amber glow was cast about the introverted mirror overhead. Another button produced a rose coloring, another a soft blue. I remember pushing these buttons to see what different effects I could get with illumination. 
With the room in darkness and only the bedlights working, the effect produced was like the Fata Morgana, reminding me of fairy book descriptions of nymphs' palaces under the sea. I remember trying on a ravishing, yellow satin Japanese kimono embroidered in festoons of wisteria. Champagne stood on a small table near the bed. Stanford was pouring some into a glass for me, and then, because of the unusual quantity of wine I had had, I lost all self-control. I grew dizzy. The room whirled around, faster and faster. I passed out. Harry Thaw always maintained afterwards that the wine was drugged. I have never believed that to be so. I think it was simply a matter of too much champagne. When I came to, I found myself in the bed, naked except for an abbreviated pink undergarment. Stanford lay beside me. Catching a glimpse of my reflection in the mirror, I think I let out one suppressed scream. I know I started to cry. I was utterly confused, still a bit dizzy, and terribly embarrassed and afraid. Stanford put on a robe and gave me the yellow satin kimono, which was lying on the back of a chair. Don't cry, kittens, he said tenderly. Kittens was his pet name for me. Don't, please don't, it's all over. Now you belong to me. And so saying, he held me on his knee and soothed me, petting me and kissing me. I entered that room a virgin, but I did not come out one. The evidence was there, and before we left the place, Stanford removed the sheets, which, even to sex-ignorant girl like me, told the tale. The scene is a nightmare for Evelyn, a horror show. It hasn't aged one bit. Even if he didn't drug her, he certainly raped an unconscious girl. He professed himself weak in her presence, her slave, that she drove him crazy, out of his mind, and all the other things men say to excuse their behavior. He places all the power with Evelyn, heady stuff for a young girl. Meanwhile, he's the adult incapable of exercising any restraint or decency or care for her well-being. For Evelyn, this is all she knew, so it was normalized. She argued that he did not drug or rape her. She had been manipulated into thinking they had a great love affair. After a while, Stanford White sent her away, supposedly for her own good, so that she would not be corrupted by life on the stage. He used her welfare when it was convenient. It was more likely his way of ending their affair by carting her off to a girls' school run by Mrs. DeMille, mother of the men who had become famous film directors, Cecil B. and William B. DeMille. Evelyn, shortly after she arrived, became ill at school. Now, after reading so many old Hollywood memoirs and biographies, her description sounds a lot like a case of peritonitis from a botched abortion. Hovering in the background while Evelyn was on stage and was exploited by Stanford White, another man was pursuing her. Harry K. Thaw was from a rich family with an estimated fortune of $40 million. Evelyn's initial reaction to Thaw proved to be sufficient foreshadowing for what was to come. He was rich, extravagant, generous, solicitous, but something about him creeped her out. Perhaps it was that he would fly off into a rage whenever the subject turned to Stanford White. He harbored such an intense hatred that he was completely irrational. Eventually, though, he wore Evelyn down. Weak from her medical emergency at the girls' school, Thaw offered to whisk her away on a trip to Europe. And to make everything seem proper, he invited her mother along on the voyage. They sailed soon after. 
On board the ship, Thaw wasted no time creating a wedge between mother and daughter. He planted the seeds of distrust and conflict and made the voyage intolerable with his bouts of temper. He plagued Evelyn with questions about her relationship with Stanford White. When you read Evelyn's account of the trip, it sounds worse than a CIA interrogation. Evelyn broke down and confessed that she had sex with White, and Thaw somehow became worse on learning the truth. After that, his behavior, his bouts of paranoia, and his vicious attacks became unbearable. Her mother actually left, and no doubt just as he had planned. Once protection was out of the way, Harry Thaw badgered her into accepting his marriage proposal, which she had refused countless times. Evelyn was only following society's wisdom drilled into her at least since her father's death that the best thing she could do was find a rich man to take care of her. The stage held no real future for proper ladies, and the Thaw family had enormous power and influence. For their honeymoon, Thaw hired out a castle in Switzerland. Evelyn was excited. But if I may be excused a small amount of hyperbolic phrasing, the destination to celebrate their nuptials was less a castle and more the gates of hell. She discovered there that he was a drug addict and a sadist. Evelyn found a case full of hypodermic needles and drugs. Thaw had been injecting cocaine and morphine for years. He grew furious with the servants for not keeping it hidden, and then later he burst into Evelyn's room. This is the excerpt from her prodigal days. I slept in a small ancient bed, and one evening, after dinner, I retired early and fell into a sound sleep. Abruptly, I was plunged into wakefulness by the bed covers being thrown back. There stood Harry Thaw, stark naked, tearing at my nightgown. Mortally terrified, I lost the use of my vocal cords, of my limbs. In one swift, violent jerk, he had stripped me. Horror-stricken, a gurgling scream escaped my lips. He clapped his hand over my mouth. The look on his face at that moment I shall never forget. His eyes were glassy, the pupils enormously dilated. His face was a livid, like death mask, the lips drawn into a thin, cruel line. Keep quiet, he breathed. Keep quiet. And then he raised high his right arm. In this hand, he clutched a dog whip. Suddenly it descended, and a thin stream of fire seemed to sting my flesh. I screamed, struggled. But the more I struggled, the more violent he became. He clawed at me. His nails dug into my flesh as I tried to draw back. Again, his hand covered my mouth. Again, the lashes of the whip bit into my defenseless body. Cruelly, his hand rose and fell, turning and twisting to elude the stinging torment. My whole body was lined with great livid welts. Thaw's eyes seemed to be coming out of his head. His expression was like nothing human. Every bit of humanity had gone out of him. He was a monster, a fiend, a demon. How long the living nightmare endured, I do not know. When my power of speech returned, I shrieked until my cries grew fainter than a whisper. The physical agony and mental terror I suffered held me on the brink of insanity. I couldn't think. All of a sudden, the demon in Thaw died out. Like a punctured balloon, he wilted while the evil grip on his soul relaxed. The sadistic orgy had exhausted him. 
Don't move, he whispered hoarsely, but in a voice I at last recognized as his own. Stay there. Don't leave that bed. In fear and trembling, in pain and despair, I lay pinioned to the bed by the fear lest my slightest move be misconstrued and goad him on to repeat the horror. But he slunk away into his own room. In a few minutes, he returned in pajamas, robe, and slippers. He was a totally different person, composed, sympathetic. Gently, he drew the bedclothes up over my bleeding body. My eyes were closed against the possible reappearance of the monstrous apparition. I waited, nerves taut, for the cutting whip to lash across my wounded, smarting limbs. Then I opened my eyes again. No, it was not a nightmare. It was Harry Thaw. He stood there, smiling down at me, a small glass of brandy in his hand. Drink this, he said. I obeyed. Could it have been only a nightmare? Surely this ghastly, gorgon-like experience could never happen to me, the petted, spoiled Evelyn Nesbitt. It was all some hideous, macabre dream. I had never heard of the Marquis de Sade, knew nothing about perverts and sex abnormalities. Yet there I lay, shaking in ague of terror, the livid welts on my body rising, searing into me like branding irons. No, no nightmare. My own red blood was streaming from the lacerations inflicted by that savage dog whip. Tears streamed down my face. Why, I sobbed. Why have you done this awful thing to me? I had to do it. But why, why, I wept brokenly. You are too impudent. You are entirely too impudent. I had to punish you. From a mysterious locked bag he always carried, which I later learned contained whips, pictures, hypodermic needles, and drugs. In short, all the paraphernalia necessary for this hideous sadistic spells, he drew forward some pictures, reproductions of exotic paintings of lovely Persian, Turkish, and Hindu slave girls. If we were living in ancient times, he said, you would be my slave. I would be a prince, and you would dance and serve me, wearing bracelets and anklets. His eyes changed remarkably. All the glassiness and glare had gone out of them. After he had spoken, he left me again, lying in the dark, ever conscious of my tortured body. I groped for some meaning behind the madness of this night. It was too much for me. The sensation of horror would not leave me. The night about me seemed like a Dantesque inferno, and I, because of my physical agony, seemed to be undergoing tortures in every plane of hell. The newlywed stayed in the castle until Evelyn's wounds disappeared. Thaw was penitent and begged forgiveness. After they returned to New York City when their honeymoon, as it were, ended, they attended a show called Mademoiselle Champagne, staged in the open-air rooftop theater above Madison Square Garden. Stanford White arrived. He had built the place, remember, and it was a fashionable night spot. Knowing that Harry would become unhinged, even though her affair with Stanford White had ended nearly four years previously, Evelyn suggested they leave. Harry agreed, but then went back to the seating area. He approached White at a table in front and shot him in the head three times. Harry Thaw was tried twice in what was called the trial of the century. 
Thaw's family threatened to cut off financial support if Evelyn did not testify and corroborate Harry's version that he had avenged the way White had ravaged her. She was grilled on the stand for days in both trials, unable to eat or sleep. The jury had been sequestered for the first time in American history due to the relentless coverage in the press. Still, they were a hung jury. At the end of the second trial, Harry Thaw was found not guilty by reason of insanity and remanded to an asylum for life. Thaw was outraged, but pretty much had his run of Matawan and other facilities because of his wealth. He was eventually granted release in 1915, again as a result of his family's ability to pay for appeals and legal intervention. Evelyn Nesbitt toured in popular vaudeville reviews until 1916, and then she started a film career. In an early production memo for The Girl in the Red Velvet Swing, produced in 1955, Daryl Zanuck had asked, Who do we root for? His query might account for the central weakness in this picture, that and the fact that Ray Milan takes top billing. When a man's name takes precedence in a woman's life story, you know that the narrative lacks focus. The picture makes a hero out of Ray Milan Stanford White to a degree that strains this viewer's patience. Rather than depict him as a serial rapist, a depraved man who used and discarded young girls, he becomes a paragon of paternalistic virtue. He does all he possibly can to discourage Evelyn, but the little minx pursues him until he can no longer resist her. The picture deletes important facts, it adopts a skewed moral compass, and includes a scene where Evelyn declares, it's all my fault after the murder trial when she begs forgiveness of Stanford White's wife. I was the one at fault, not he, Joan yells on the street. In addition to a girl taking a blame for her rape, there's also the scene when Harry's mother, played by Cornelia Otis Skinner, begs Evelyn to testify on her son's behalf and save his life. She convinces Evelyn by taking the blame for her son's awful behavior. I nearly screamed when she says, The very womb in which Harry grew was a torture chamber, a torture chamber of mother love. Mrs. Thaw was so distraught after she accidentally smothered her elder son in bed one night, she says, that she then in turn smothered Harry with mother love and ruined him for life. It's her fault that he's a monster. In a curious series of choices, this notorious sex scandal has become scrubbed clean of almost every reference to sex. No doubt wary of the production code, the Fox production avoids overt references to what the two men, rich men did to Evelyn. The only part of the scandal they show unvarnished is when Thaw shoots White thrice in the head. In characteristic Hollywood fashion, violence is just fine, it's acceptable, but sex must be hidden away like the fancy chocolates from children. Of all the things the film sanitizes from Evelyn's memoir, the most surprising is the scene with the girl in the pie. The film makes it seem like boilerplate stuff, a girl in a pie for a stag night in a men's club. In Prodigal Days, Evelyn recalled a story that Stanford White reluctantly admitted to. He normally took great pains to avoid negative publicity. It was one of his greatest fears, as is usually the case with serial abusers. 
The story should have provided the proof Evelyn needed to run for the hills, but young girls are often strangely immune to the tragedies that befall their number. The girl in the pie had been Stanford White's idea. The waiters at the Bacchanal probably leaked the story to the press. The tabloids had a field day with the deviant excess of the rich. A girl emerged from a pie with a bunch of blackbirds. She wore only sheer black chiffon. The men assembled went wild. The girl was named by the press. The scandal led to her family disowning her. She was completely alone in the world, bereft, and died a short time later, and then was buried in Potter's Field. The Fox production, by contrast, uses the story to build Stanford White's moral character. When he learns that Evelyn has been hired to jump out of the pie, he tosses a number for a vaudeville girl at the men organizing the party and spirits Evelyn away for a good dinner and then a ride on the swing. There is one outrageously saucy line that Joan Collins delivers, and she does so with gusto. When she lights Stanford White's cigar and he asks her how she learned to do that, Evelyn responds that her father taught her, and then she adds, Sometimes he even let me take a puff, and I never choked once. Ray Milan's facial reaction lands the fellatio joke. There are many good things about the girl in the red velvet swing, though. The performances are rock solid and makes it worth your time. In the title role of Evelyn Nesbitt, Joan Collins looks every bit the authentic Gibson girl in her nip jackets, abundant if borrowed tresses, and a flawless peaches and cream complexion. She plays innocent without being cloying or priggish, as say June Allison would have been in the role. The sweetness is leveled out with a few moments when she snaps at men and gets a few juicy dramatic turns. Her first big acting scene occurs when she falls ill at the DeMille's school for ladies. White deposits her there to keep her safe from men like Harry Thaw, he says. In a white nightgown, she clutches a pain in her side, I really do think it was a botched abortion, and fights the pain to go downstairs and place a call to Stanford White. She writhes on the floor in agony, holding the phone receiver, while the headmistress scolds her for using the phone. She screams out, they changed the line, they changed the line. White's number had been disconnected, and she has no way to reach him. The placid smile on her face that has held thus far dissolves into spasm of pain and humiliation. It's a great moment for Joan. She resists the film's preference to see her as a passive beauty. Another scene occurs for Joan to show off her dramatic chops when she's off on the European tour with Harry Thaw, who's played by Farley Granger. Obviously, the studio wasn't going to show you the part where, you know, she discovers Harry's secret drug case or when he whips her, but they replace it with a scene that hints at the violent underpinning of their relationship. In Switzerland, without the benefit of a warm coat, gloves, or scarf, somehow they decide to go for a hike in the mountains. But yet it's icy and remote, just like his character. He badgers her with questions about her relationship with White and forces her to reveal that they had been lovers, that it wasn't innocent. As Thaw, Farley Granger smacks her twice across the face, knocking her down. In another scene, one morning after they have been married, Evelyn looks at all the wedding gifts displayed in the dining room. Farley Granger wears a red quilted dressing jacket that makes him look scarier than anything in the blood-soaked hammer pictures. 
He's a bourgeois vampire sucking the life out of his bride, nagging her about how to write thank you notes, and browbeats her about her spelling mistakes. Farley Granger is so good because he knows just how to play a handsome man as an implicit threat. How the privilege translates into something sinister, just like he did in Hitchcock's Rope. Who needs to reach as far as it count with fangs when you have the terror of a spoiled rich boy looming over your shoulder? As Evelyn's mother, Glenda Farrell hits us with the sass just when we need it. She tells Evelyn some harsh truths, which her real mother never had enough sense to impart. Her mother says, I've seen more tears run down the pretty faces than the plain ones when Evelyn's head is turned by male admirers. When Evelyn swoons over her first meeting with Stanford White, her mama tells her that having met him three times is enough. When Evelyn corrects her that she only met him once, her mother clamps down, it was three. The first time, the last time, and the never again time. In another scene, when Mrs. Nesbitt discovers that Evelyn has received money from Stanford White and questions her about it, Evelyn attempts to sass back. She tells her mother she can throw it out the window for all she cares. Mrs. Nesbitt snaps, you account for every cent of that money or I'll throw you out the window. In reality, Evelyn's mother couldn't wait to hand her over to the first rich man who came along. In Joan Collins' autobiography, Past Imperfect, published in 1983, she recalled that the role of Evelyn Nesbitt was a part highly sought after by contract players in Fox Studio. Marilyn Monroe had already refused to do the part when the studio had earmarked it for her. Producer Daryl Zanuck and the screenwriter Charles Brackett had both conceived the billing as a story with two great beauties of their respective era. Marilyn had by this point tired of the sexy dame parts and wanted something more challenging. Deborah Padgett and Terry Moore both wanted the part. Joan learned that she had the lead role from an article in The Hollywood Reporter rather than from her agent or from the studio directly. She had only been under contract for a few months with Fox Studio, and she was 22 years old. Joan committed to the prepare for the role of Evelyn Nesbitt. She had to learn the dance routines as the Floridora Cars girl. She endured regular fittings for the 27 costumes she would wear. She had to drop her British accent for the part and spent two hours a day with a voice coach. To her dismay, Joan found that she could not adopt a convincing American enunciation for the RL ending for words like girl. So Jeffrey Hunter, the actor who had been assigned to help her with an accent, combed through the script and found synonyms for words that ended in RL. It took some doing. Inhibited by the overstyled look that her character bore, Joan entered every scene with an enormous wig that was heavy and burdensome. Even worse, she described the ordeal of the period costumes, which she explained were agony to wear. I wore an authentic corset that laced my waist into the fashionable hourglass figure of the 1900s. On top of this went several lace petticoats with millions of ruffles, a camisole, and then one of the 27 gowns, all of which had more bones in them than a sardine. The collars had little bones or stays in them, so that if I moved my head too much at an angle, I would get stabbed in the throat. On my head sat an enormous black wig, beautiful but heavy, secured with 90 hairpins, and stuck to my forehead and the side of my face with glue. 
Sometimes on top of this hair would rest a gigantic hat covered with peacock or ostrich feathers, or an abundance of flowers, or trailing ribbons, and the hat was secured to the wig with several lethal hat pins. To dress and arrange the wig took an hour and a half each morning, and then another 45 minutes for makeup and body makeup, which was applied to every inch of skin the camera might possibly glimpse. When Joan was off duty, she tooled around town without makeup, in casual attire such as jeans and a man's button-up shirt, wearing her hair brushed out straight with a long fringe in front. Had a hopper raked her over the coals in her column, saying that Joan looked like she had combed her hair with an egg beater. One day on set, in her street clothes and no makeup, the director, Richard Fleischer, made a savage comment in front of the cast and crew. He said, my God, I didn't recognize you. You look so ugly. Only in Hollywood would a man declare a natural beauty an ugly duckling. Another strain on set for Joan came from the presence of the real Evelyn Nesbitt, who had been hired as a consultant for the picture. Joan said Evelyn watched her like a hawk and made her a nervous wreck. Joan observed that Evelyn was often in her cups. Evelyn ate violet-scented cashews to disguise the odor of gin. Joan recalled, closer than a foot from her face, and I became dizzy from the fumes. But Evelyn Nesbitt had been through the wars, so who could blame her for a flask of gin? Joan Collins retained the reaction her younger self had to the aging process. She recoiled in a way that points to a deep unease about a woman's worth and the whole truth and beauty baggage. Joan wrote of Evelyn growing from a celebrated glamour girl to an old lady. To be born physically perfect is akin to being born rich and then gradually becoming poorer with age. It makes me sad to read her view of aging, which I hope has changed over time. Instead of looking at age as an impoverishment, why not be grateful for the privilege of having once been beautiful? After all, it's an accident of birth like any other. At the very least, with age should come the wisdom to avoid being a doormat. In his book Behind the Mask of Innocence, Kevin Brownlow emphasizes the importance of Evelyn Nesbitt's story to the history of cinema. Brownlow argues that there are so many significant connections between Evelyn and the film industry that one could devote an entire book to the subject. I was surprised that since the book was published nearly 30 years ago that no one has taken him up on his offer. Brownlow identifies the Thaw murder case as instrumental in the early attempts at censorship. Films about the case were released within days of the murder on the rooftop and continued for decades. The nature of the case was cause for alarm when it came to what you could safely depict on film. Evelyn began a career in pictures when her vaudeville show closed in 1916. Many of the pictures she appeared in borrowed heavily from the circumstances with White and Thaw. Of the ten pictures she made, Brownlow cites Redemption from 1917 as the best in terms of plot and performance. In the film, she also appears with her son Russell, whom she claimed to have conceived one night when she visited Thaw in the asylum and he had bribed the guards to leave them alone for a little while. We seem to have come full circle in the interpretation of what Evelyn's story means. 
First, she was a dominant face in advertising, then a stage coquette who ruled men with the power of her arresting beauty. One cover issue of Screen Stories magazine from 1955 paints her as though she were a modern femme fatale, a noir dame. The sidebar on the cover of Screen Stories describes Evelyn in quotes as the babe who left one guy pushing up daisies and the other one in the bug house. As it happens, that's also the last line in the picture, uttered by a vaudeville MC as he introduces Evelyn to the stage. In her memoir, Past Imperfect, Joan Collins said that the embryo of Alexis in Dynasty was her character Crystal Allen in the remake of The Women, The Opposite Sex, which was made in 1956. As much as I approve the progeny of bitchery, starting with a character made famous by Joan Crawford, I would instead choose the last scene in The Girl in the Red Velvet Swing. Joan's character Evelyn burns the bridges with the Thaw family and resigns herself to four shows a day in a vaudeville act. As she climbs into the red velvet swing, the look on her face is the beginning of the exquisite sass mouth she musters for Alexis Morrell, Carrington Colby, Dexter Rowan. As an unruly mob of Eros pays to gawp, Joan Collins takes her place in a red velvet swing with the look on her face that says grit, resolve, and fortitude to keep herself intact while the men beneath her howl. As I said at the start of this episode, the media take on Evelyn Nesbitt seems to come full circle. Once again, she's being used as a Goliath in advertising. I could hardly believe my eyes when I saw it. In a recent article in the New York Times by Jania Belafonte, dated from 10 May 2019, it had a headline that caught my eye. The 100-foot Gibson girl, a symbol of abuse then and now. Could it be about Evelyn, I thought? You know how it is when you're doing research and you get to the point where you seem to see references to your subject everywhere? Usually it's not the case. It's just a product of obsessive imagination. But this story was, in fact, about Evelyn Nesbitt. Developers of a building on Fifth Avenue in New York City, renovated for commercial office space, commissioned an artist to paint a 100-foot mural of Evelyn Nesbitt. The result isn't a portrait of the most um, famous celebrated beauty of her era. Instead, the artist, Tristan Eaton, uses Evelyn's figure as a vehicle to carry a pastiche of images from the era. Included in her form is the design for the Diana statue from the rooftop of Madison Square Garden, a police badge, a streetcar, construction workers hanging from ropes and pulleys, a tray of sliced beef tenderloin for, one supposes, the former name assigned to the area, the Tenderloin District, a deck of cards, and advertising imagery from the era. Evelyn Nesbitt's face and body are used to showcase a seedy patchwork of what amounts to be one huge realtor's advertisement. It's grim and vulgar. Belafonte does not pull any punches and makes it clear that Evelyn has once again been been exploited by the commercial market, while her story has been stripped of its larger significance as a survivor of sexual abuse. She's a display case, a symbol, but not a woman with her own story. Finally, let me leave you with one last thing to wrap up this episode. You might have guessed that I own a lot of books. 
When asked to name the most valuable book in my collection, I don't need a moment to pause. Without a doubt, the volume that would fetch the most on resale would be my first edition of Prodigal Days, The Untold Story, published by Julian Messer in 1934, Evelyn Nesbitt's book. It cost me 300 euro. I've never spent more on a book. If that seems like an extravagant purchase, let me assure you that I was extremely lucky to get it so cheap. Periodically, I'll look online to see how much copies are selling for. Recently, I saw a photocopy of the book on offer for $75, a Xerox copy for $75. A reprint edition from the 2005 edition went for $195. I've noticed other first editions going for more than $500. And recently I saw a first edition, a signed copy on eBay, was listed at $2,240. So in the end, my copy was a total bargain. Snag one if you can. It'll increase in value guaranteed. Thanks very much for listening. Please return for episode 52 when I talk about Fay Ray and Ann Carver's profession, a pre-code picture from 1933. Thanks very much.